Hello and welcome to the third episode of the Performance Through Health podcast and today I'm going to get a bit nerdy. So I'm going to take you through an introduction to the science of sleep. And essentially what we're going to be discussing is why is it that we sleep, what is sleep and how do we get to sleep and then going into normal sleep physiology discussing some of the impacts that poor sleep has on our our brain and our body and then I want to introduce you guys to a concept or you know a, a disorder called obstructive sleep apnea which is very common in the western society and then I'm going to give you some tips to take away to use to improve your sleep that we call sleep hygiene so why is it that I have the authority to talk about this well I am a, a senior respiratory and sleep scientist at a company called Cardio Respiratory Sleep, which is an integrated healthcare scientist, um, healthcare private healthcare company that is involved with diagnosing and treating individuals with sleep disorders and breathing disorders. But then we also link that to patients with with cardiac disorders. And I've been in the healthcare industry now for seven years doing this, and I have uh, built up. A lot of experience and a lot of knowledge and worked with thousands of patients to improve their sleep and we don't get enough information out there about sleep essentially and the medical world is a bit behind because it's not really been something that we've investigated. If we think about it, sleep has always been a natural kind of um, process and Ellen Rechenschaffen, he was the, one of the pioneers of sleep science and he brought all the, you know, the research into, uh, into play back in the 70s and he if it wasn't for him then we we wouldn't have we wouldn't be where we are today and he wrote, literally wrote the book on how we score sleep so when we're looking at sleep in terms of in the labs we actually look at it as a visual thing and we score different processes and we'll get onto a little bit of that later however um he was the first guy to actually say that if sleep does not serve as an absolute vital function then it's the biggest the biggest mistake that evolutionary process has ever made but before we go deeper into you know, the science of sleep, I just want to discuss firstly a little bit about the evolution of sleep and what that means uh, to explain some of the causes for concern that may, may arise later on in, in this lecture. So Samson and Nunn, they actually did a review on the intensity and depth of sleep and the evolution of the human cognition. And in this table here, it shows that roughly 18 million years ago, our primate answers ancestors slept in trees on forages uh, or in the arms of their mothers. Now interestingly as the part of the evolutionary process our bodies have to go under undergo processes to initiate sleep and two of which are a lack in movement and a reduction in core body temperature. Now there's evidence to suggest that this is an evolutionary process that's required to undergo because as a means to survive apes would need to avoid predators such as lizards and snakes. Now these predators tend to sense movement and heat to source their prey. However, due to the, the, the weak sleeping platforms, the depth of sleep that primates actually get compared to the hunter-gatherer and nowadays the post-industrial human is very light. And this, in this review actually suggests that primates lacked REM sleep. And REM sleep is typically involved in the process of learning, memory, executive and processing such as social skills and emotional regulation. So if I was to have a room full of humans, 
they would be socially acceptable and they would get on with each other to a certain extent. However, if you were to swap this for the grey ape, they would have, end up with a, in a mass brawl of bloodshed uh, because of their irrationality and their primal instincts. But there's evidence to suggest that the transition of apes coming from down the trees, moving into the vast landscape, improving their sleep by having a stable ground, changes in diet and movement into the unknown helps develop the human brain that we call the primary cortex. The learning of new skills related to fire for protection and cooking, to, and cooking decreased uh, sleep time and you know, social skills were further developed. Sleeping on the ground was extended for more regular periods and the percentage of REM and deep sleep over a million of years has developed into what we get today as man. Sleep has always been natu naturally regulated. However, over the last 150 years, since Edison's uh, progressed with the invention of the artificial light, the light bulb, the dynamic of human sleep has actually artificially ch uh, changed and now it's regulated by, by ourselves. So who knows what this development on our brain, uh, this, this, this you know, development could have on our brains. And the research is already suggesting that there's a cause for concern. So... There are many reasons to why we sleep. We've already discussed one of them. But one of the prevailing theories is we have to go back in that history again. And that the evolutionist believes that this was a survival mechanism. It's, pre it's been predicted that life has been on Earth for about 3.8 billion years. Some researchers suggest that animals began to sleep more than half a billion years ago. And there's evidence that fireflies and other invertebrates have similar circadian rhythms as humans do. But what would happen as a protective mechanism is that these um, sleep would allow us to rest and hide away and keep away from predators that were more um, more likely to be able to take us out during during darkness, for example. And it allowed animals who were vulnerable to be able to escape that and survive and therefore live today. Then there's the energy conservation method of, of, or theory of sleep, sorry. And that's like that energy is a physiological, in, physio, in a physiological sense, is, is finite. It's, we have this, uh, you know, uh, throughout the day we would have this large amount of energy to expend. And if you think back to the hunter-gatherer days, man would be out hunting for food and to ensure that there's, uh, you know, we need to ensure that there's adequate energy during this cru crucial time to, um, to ensure that we can, we can hunt and we can we can survive and that we can go and forage out there and, and you know, procreate and all those things that allowed us to, to be who we are today, all these animal instincts. What sleep allowed us to do is it actually allowed us to pre preserve that energy so that we could uh, go out during the day. Then there is the, 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 um, the process that the body undergoes in terms of maintenance and repair, and that's more of a, the biological and physiological recovery, and we'll discuss that more today. And a final theory that we've already discussed uh, briefly is that actually during REM sleep, we get this file in the stories of memories, and that allows us to regulate emotions, learn new skills, and form new neural pathways through a process of neuroplasticity plasticity, and neurogenesis. So Schmidt, in 2014, he wanted to come up with this idea of a universal concept into why we sleep. The theory is known as the energy allocation principle, 
And it demonstrates that there we have a sleep center and awake centers in the brains. Those centers uh, dedicate, dedicate energy for wakefulness or, or for sleep. And you know, these are mostly controlled by the Earth's rotation around its axis, and it goes down to you know, the sun and the light, the light from the sun and the darkness when the, uh, the sun goes down. And that controls what we call our master clock, the suprachiasmatic nuclei. So during wakefulness, the, cent the autonomic nervous system is prim primarily induced by the sympathetic nervous system, and that allocates energy for waking effort. Now, on the grand scheme of things, that's kind of just being vigilant, having a, being attentive, being able to be uh, you know, reproducing competitive. Whereas s during sleep, the energy is then located into um, functions that allow for maintenance and promote uh, you know, overweightful activities according to circadian rhythms and allocate that energy into biological investments such as growth, repair, and immune, immune system uh, function. But this theory actually suggests that it's the net energy slavings from sleep generally appears modest when we compare to wakefulness. However, it's the optimization of the actual energy distribution over a 24-hour period that allows for that relative stability of energy across behavioral states. So organs within, our human, within the human body have like a cellular local clock, but this should correspond with the master clock and the hormones that are derived throughout the body from the central nervous system should be in sync. However, if there isn't, there's, there's consequences with what we call a circadian rhythm mismatch. So sleep can actually be defined as a brain state, a process or a behavior. Now the way that we actually measure sleep in lab and actually at home is that we we put cannulas uh, within the nose. We have, sorry, we'll start off at the top. So at the head, we have electrodes on the head. And, and what that looks for is that looks for electrical activity within the brain. So we're measuring brain waves. Then we have a, um, above and below the eye, we have electrodes that measure muscular activity and uh, movement in the eye pattern. So when people are typically falling asleep, we might start to see slow eye movements. Um, and then when people are in REM sleep, we have rapid eye movements. And then we use an EMG to measure um, muscular activity within the jaw. So we can see when people are either, uh, when, when they have what's called bruxism, which is grinding up the teeth. But it's also used to, to look at when there's a lack of muscle tone during REM sleep. We have the nasal cannula, which measures, measures airflow. So we can see how much air is getting passed in and out of the nose or the mouth. There's bouts that measure the breathing efforts and, and your chest and abdomen movements. And then there's also an oximeter on your finger to measure your oxygen levels in your blood. This gives us a big picture and it's called polysonography. You can also see that it can be done at home and it's quite advanced in cardiorespiratory sleep. We actually do one of the more advanced systems and then the picture we actually get is all these squiggly lines. So at the top here, the very top, we've got eye movement. And then we've got the brain waves of the black, chin, chin activity, heart rate, the, we've got the thermistor and that is the airflow. And then you've got the, um, you've got the, uh, the bands and then the oxygen levels, etc., etc. So during REM sleep, 
during sleep, sorry, there are all different states of, of brainwave activities, as I've already mentioned. So when we're awake, we get what we call beta waves. And these are very random, uh, quite high frequency, low amplitude waves. And as you start to become a bit more drowsy and more relaxed, we get what's called alpha waves. And this just could be just when you're closing your eyes, relaxing, or when you start to feel a little bit tired. And then as we move into theta waves, that's what we call then stage one sleep. And theta waves can actually be accessed through meditation. And theta waves are associated with high levels of creativity. So if you've ever found yourself falling asleep or in a bit of a, a daydream and all of a sudden you come up with an idea, that is probably because your body started to go, your brain started to go into that theta wave state. Stage two is the most prominent stage of sleep that we see, stage of sleep we see in sleep, and is very easy to detect because we get these short electrical bursts of activity called sleep spindles and K-complexes. And then the deepest stage of sleep is we get this low frequency, deep, high amplitude waves called delta waves. We then get a picture from the waves that are generated, and this is what's called a hypnogram. Now, normal sleep is roughly five stages of 90 to 120 minutes of cycles throughout the night. And the, typically, the first half of the night is dedicated to what we call non-REM sleep. So that's your stages one, two, and three. Now, the latter half of the, the night, as you can see from this hypnogram, is more focused on REM sleep with stage two sleep being the most prominent stage in healthy individuals. But how is sleep initiated? Well, as we go about our day, the universal cellular energy molecule that we use is a, is a, is a, a compound called adenosine triphosphate. Now, it's a chemical compound, compound made up of adenosine and free phosphate molecules. Now, when one of these phosphate molecules is broken off, that releases a burst of energy and that's what we can then use for say muscular contraction or the, the brain can use that as well for just general activity. But if it's broken down again, we get then a shift into what's called AMP, so adenosine monophosphate. Eventually this is broken down to what we call adenosine. We get the accumulation of this and it shifts from a high concentration to a low concentration through the adenosine transporters into the extracellular matrix in the brain. What this in turn does is that each synapse within the brain, so that's the formation of two uh, neurons, within that space, there's neurochemicals that are either inhibitory or excitory. Now, those are excitory. One of those is glutamate. What that does, glutamate, 20% of that is, is then actually goes to this AMPAR receptor, and that stimulates and activates and excites the neurons. But then you have this astrolyte, which is astrocyte, sorry, which is like a messenger cell between neurons. 80% of the glutamate goes into that. And with, a com with an influx of ca uh, calcium, we get the formation of ATP. ATP then is rapidly broken down to adenosine as it's used for energy. And what this then happens is the adenosine actually acts on these A1R receptors and that inhibits the action potentials and what is what causes that pressure to sleep, that feeling of tiredness, that feeling of that cognitive impair, that feeling like you just want to feel, you're starting to feel drowsy. And that, that theory of how we, how we actually initiate sleep is called the sleep homeostasis.
that's also regulated by what I've called previously circadian rhythms. And that's dictated by our sleep-wake cycles and it's controlled by the light and dark. So throughout the day, as our uh, as lights sensed in the eyes, we the, the, the light, the, the ganglion cells at the back of the retina actually stimulate neural and hormonal outputs that shift the central nervous system to increase cortisol production and that excites the brain and, and causes this wakefulness. However, when the sun sets and dark arises, melatonin is produced and it's re released by the, the pineal gland which is just behind, behind the, um, the thalamus. And that then initiates sleep. So melatonin should peak roughly around about midnight and cortisol is at its lowest. As I already mentioned, core body temperatures have to drop roughly around about one, to one degree centigrade or three degree uh, Fahrenheit. And then over the night, there's a gradual decrease in melatonin and an increase in cortisol which promotes wakefulness come the morning. Within the actual pineal, the pineal gland, the cells itself, so these pineal sites, during darkness we get an influx of neuroepinephrine. Now that whole action that's happening within the cells of ATP being converted to AMP, that in combined with amino acids such as glutamate, GABA and um, many others, increases what's called a, an enzyme called N-acetyltransferase and that actually converts serotonin into melatonin. And there's a lot of studies that suggest that we can actually increase the, number, the, the amount of tryptophan by artificially, say, eating it in a diet or consuming that, and that can increase the amount of serotonin, and that can potentially help individuals with depressive symptoms. But it also can help with sleep by improving, increasing the amount of melatonin. But on, in the actual brain itself, is we get this change in these sleep-wake centers. So if there is a, a down-regulation of the wakefulness centers and there's an, there's an allocation of energy to the sleep centers, what that does is it actually switches off this ascending reticulator activating system. And the rest system is what is our consciousness. So that's why when we go into deep sleep, is actually we're not aware of time. We're not aware that we even exist. And therefore, that is what initiates the deepest levels of sleep. Now, when you've got the pons, when that's activated, we actually get an increase in the visual cortex, and that's when we dream, and that's when it activates REM sleep. There's many neurochemicals that are involved in the regulation of wakefulness and sleep, but to get into the depth of this, it's, it's it's going to be beyond the scope of the lecture and we'd need a fair few hours. But um, the main ones we need to look at really is acetylcholine, which is a major contributor of the excitation of neurons and that also plays a role in activating REM sleep, that PONS. But then brainwave activity during wakefulness is actually very similar to sleep. And it's actually proposed that dreaming and the activation of this, this visual cortex is, is, a, is, an, un, is an unconscious state. Then you've got the, uh, the monoamines, so this is serotonin, dop dopamine, and they both play a role in wakefulness and non-REM sleep. Orexins and hypocretins are wakefulness-promoting chemicals, and they prevent, um, they actually increase the likelihood of arousal. And then you've got MCH and, 
I can't remember what the names of VLPO are and MLPO are, but VLPO and MLPO, they are centers within the brain or clusters of noras in the brain that are near the hypothalamus that actually are mainly activated during REM sleep and non-REM sleep. There are many different drugs that can affect sleep. We know that we have all these chemicals in the brains because of this and SSSRIs, which typically used to treat depression, they actually decrease the amount of REM sleep that we get by in, by in increasing ex, ex, extracellular uh, serotonin. Then we got the uh, now amphetamines such as uh, dexamphetamine, uh, meth, methamphetamine. Uh, those typical stimulant drugs that people need to tend to stay away from because they actually increase dopamine and neuropinephrine and increase wakefulness. And that's why you you typically hear these people who are addicted to, to meth might say they've not slept for three or four days, or cocaine, they've not slept for three or four days. Benzodiazepines increase sleep. And uh, that's essentially how we know that all these numbers, are, these, these sleep, this is how we know that the... Um, the, these chemicals that are involved in our brains. So classic antihistamines, they block, they block, um, yeah, reduce histamine, so that increases sleep. And then you got the anti antipsychotics that increase sleep as well. What about the clinical impacts of poor sleep? So this is what poor sleep can do to you as an individual, and it's quite important that we discuss this because I don't think there's enough awareness around sleep in general. When we think about health, we always think about nutrition, exercise, movement. But it's only just recently, and probably likely because of the work that Professor Matthew Walker has been doing with his book, Why We Sleep, and all the research he's been doing over at Harvard and throughout his career, he's massively changed the opinion on, um, on, on the, how important sleep is. But what about the most common causes of abnormal sleep? So... The first one is going to be insomnia. Now, insomnia is typically, there's two forms. You've got psychological insomnia, which means an individual does not believe they get enough sleep to warrant them to be able to perform their best the following day. Therefore, they might misperceive how much sleep they're getting. They get concerned and worried about their sleep so much that it becomes a vicious cycle that they actually get then stressed and that causes influx of um, stress hormones in the body and these stress chemicals in the body that then can impact their sleep. Now insomnia is, the best treatment for insomnia is going to be cognitive behavioral therapy and that's just changing your mindset around your sleep that you actually can perform your daily duties and it's just to change that perspective. Then there's a physiological side for insomnia as well and that is usually due to a clinical concern or due to drugs, or due to um, medications that that may that may take, or physiological issues within the body. The second one is going to be pain. Now, this is a funny one because pain causes stress during sleep because people might have shoulder issues and they can only lie on their left shoulder for a certain period. Then it starts to get normal, gets to sore, and that then disturbs individuals. Or they've had problems with their hips, or if you've if you've just had surgery on your elbow, for example, rolling onto your side, all of a sudden you get this shot of pain and that disturbs you and wake you up. And that's probably the second most common issue that I see in clinics in terms of um, people dis disrupting people's sleep.
Then we've got sleep disorder breathing, and that can be categorized into um, obstructive sleep apnea, which is where the airways are collapsing on top of each other during your sleep, causing your breathing issues. Central sleep apnea, which is where the brain actually forgets to send the signals down your nerve spine, down your um, your uh, spinal cord to your diaphragm, your vagus nerve, sorry, and therefore it's almost like you forget to breathe during your sleep. And then there's what's called obesity hyperventilation, and that's where people are so large that actually they underbreathe because of the weight and because of disorders within their body, perhaps due to hormones or other issues, that causes these these this sleep disorder breathing. Or you can get a mixture of all, all two, two or three, and that is then a, a complex case of sleep disorder breathing. Restless leg syndrome, which is a, a consistent patterned twitching in your feet that can cause uh, sleep disturbances and can be enough to make people feel tired during the day or wake up frequently. And this can um, also be a, a, one of the first signs of Parkinson's disease. Then we've got REM sleep behavior disorders. So this is typically behavior disorders during that section of sleep we call REM. And these are the um, when you're watching a documentary about sleep disorders, the ones that are particularly glamorized or shown, they're the ones where we see people screaming in their sleep and it looks like people have you know, been possessed by a devil or they're a part of an exorcism or something like that. Then you've got narcolepsy. So narcolepsy is typically known by more, it's, it's, it's um, symptom called cataplexy, which is where people all of a sudden fall asleep because of maybe high emotions or, 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 or laughter or, or something like that. And, you see those YouTube clips where people are at a dinner table and someone falls asleep and their head goes into into their dinner and then when they wake up everyone's laughing so they laugh and it happens again it just kind of happens on this cycle and over and over but it's not quite funny for people that suffer with with narcolepsy then you got sleepwalking sleep terrors which are essentially real bad nightmares and then bruxism which is the grind of the teeth so what does abnormal sleep look like for us so in this case, at the top here, we've got stages um, one to four, and then we've got REM sleep. So we've got a lot of green, which is typical, so that's stage two sleep. Very small amount of stage one sleep, which is normal. We've probably got a fairly decent amount of REM sleep there. We've got absolutely no deep sleep. And this was a 26-year-old um, young athlete, and he used to train late at night, pretty substantial um, intensity with his training, and he was, compla he was complaining that he was st struggling to get up in the morning. Now, he did have what we call an apnea hypopnea index of 10, so there is evidence that he has mild obstructive sleep apnea, and he does get disturbed by his breathing roughly 10 times an hour, and when he's on his back, that goes up to 24 times an hour, so it was recommended to him that actually he should do some positional therapy where he does not lay on his back, but his arousal index was 22 an hour, with most of those being periodic limb movements. So he may have some nutritional deficiency, um, such as you know, a potassium or, or magnesium deficiency. So therefore, it was recommended to him to, to have some blood tests. But also, it was suggested that he change his training time from nighttime to morning to see whether that improved his sleep. So that gives us pictures of what typical things we may be looking for in terms of abnormal sleep.
But what actually happens to the body if we do get poor sleep? So in terms of the brain, Professor Matthew Walker and his team back in 2007 were actually the first individuals to look at what impact does sleep deprivation have on the, on the brain. Now, they looked at, I believe it was 20 different individuals and did what's called a functional MRI, which looks at what part of the brain is activated at certain periods. And you can see here, the sleep control has very small dots in that middle part of the brain, whereas in the sleep deprivation, it's very bright. So that means the activation of that part of the brain is, 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 is increased. And there's actually an increase roughly around about 60% here of activation of what we call the amygdala. And the amygdala is that monkey part of our brain. It's the part of the brain that causes that anxiety. It promotes fear. It's, it's there to protect us. It's that irrational part of the brain that makes you scared and worried. So therefore, sleep deprivation, and these guys were actually deprived of sleep for 36 hours, has a greater impact of, of a greater peak signal of, of amygdala response and the total extent that the, the activation of the amygdala is also significantly increased. So these guys were the first people to show by picture that it's the reason we get cranky when we're sleeping. It's the reason we're cranky when we've missed a day's sleep. And they, they believe that it's actually down to a disconnect between the prefrontal cortex, which is that part of the brain that's developed over the evolutionary of getting good sleep, eating good nutrition, developing social skills, and being able to um, work with each other. That prefrontal cortex is the CEO of the brain. It what, it's what directs what we see in front of us, how we perceive that, and how we react to that. Now, when, there's a disconnection between that and people who are sleep deprived. So therefore, the reaction that we have is, is not with that prefrontal cortex, that is that rational part and says, okay, what's going on here? It's straight away with that monkey part of the brain that's straight away looking at the emotional side of that. So therefore, it makes us a lot more emotional, which isn't good. And we typically see that in, you know, in the clinics because obviously dealing with sleepy people, we actually have to, you wouldn't have to word, it, word what you're saying to them differently but you do have to take a different approach to these individuals as you would to someone who has got good sleep because they are a lot more uh, emotional and this does increase the risk of them likely having um, you know depression or anxiety and we've got to be got to be mindful of that so definitely get you get your sleep guys what about our behavior so although it's making these changes within our brain, does this actually impact how we actually behave? At the end of the day, our brain is what interprets our, our, how we act in the world. Our thoughts are what interpret how we act in the world. So that adenosine that causes the pressure to sleep. Now, in a sleep-deprived state, the adenosine actually binds with its, increases the amount that it binds with its receptors, typically these D1R receptors. So therefore, adenosine was what actually take is, is this whole dep uh, uh, um, dopaminergic system is what promotes advancing behavior, so forward behavior. So, for example, if you were to see um, something you you like and you want to go towards, reaching so setting a goal. So say you're setting a goal. Setting a goal and actually attaining that goal increases the amount of dopamine in there. It's what makes you feel good. It's what gives you that pleasure. What gives you that buzz. So all of a sudden if you've got an influx of extra dopamine within the brain because actually the adenosine has 
has competed with the other receptors, we're more likely to approach things when we shouldn't. And what sleep deprivation does is it actually it increases the, the value that we see on rewards. So say if something is very low, low reward, but it's a high risk, we actually see that differently when we're deprived in sleep. So we see that as a, a high reward that is actually, actually a low risk. And this gives an explanation to why we do stupid things when we're sleeping. But it also gives an explanation to why lack of sleep can increase the risk of alcoholism, you know, drug intake, sexual behavior, all those sort of things. But it also gives an explanation to why there's no clocks in Vegas. So in the body, we have this system called the, the lymphatic system. And what that does is it drains all the waste material that's, that's accumulated within the body over the day into the lymph nodes, into the lymph system, which is then taken to the liver where it is metabolized and it's removed. In the brain, it's, it was never thought that we have this. But just in 2018, it was discovered that we actually have what they've termed the glymphatic system. So we get an influx of, of cerebral spinal fluid into this periarterial space within the brain. And the hydrostatic pressures, so the movement of fluid through gravity, moves this uh, cerebral spinal fluid through the deep cerebral veins. And it essentially washes out all this adenosine and, and metabolic products, uh, waste products from metabolic activity from just daytime activity. And that is then removed um, out of the brain. And that is what actually keeps our brain clean. So in this study, they looked at, I think it was 20 nurses that were deprived of sleep for 26 hours, I believe. And they looked at the amount of beta amyloid plaques within the brain. And beta amyloid is one of the the waste products that accumulates within our brain through through day-to-day's activity. Now, this study was just one night of sleep deprivation. And there was a 5% increase in total beta amyloid. But it doesn't, that doesn't necessarily seem like it's a lot. But the majority of it was all around this area of the brain we call the hippocampus. And the hippocampus is the part of the brain that's actually utilized. Um, its function of that is, is for memory. So it's this be- accumulation of beta amyloid within the brain through poor sleep it actually has a high association with increased risk of Alzheimer's disease. And even those who had reported sleep hours, so those who have lower sleep hours have a significantly increased risk of um, Alzheimer's disease compared to those who have greater sleep hours. So in summary, on the brain, the poor sleep actually causes a disconnect between the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala, making you more sensitive to negative emotion. The activity of the hippocampus is actually altered, and that impairs working memory and your intelligence. This formation of the beta amyloid plaques and the reduced clearance actually increases risk of Alzheimer's disease and therefore dementia. And the reward center in the, in the prefrontal cortex is actually enhanced. So that makes you impulsive and prone to rec- making risky decisions. So imagine you're a businessman, you're only 
sleeping for four or five hours, you're more likely to take risky decisions based on impulse rather than on your intuition and on, on your rationalism. The visual and sensory centers within the brain are also impaired and that makes it very difficult to be attentive and remain focused, therefore reducing your performance. But it's not about just about the brain nowadays. The main thing we need to be concerned about is actually chronic disease. So in this meta-analysis, which is a, a recording of multiple studies over many years, that are drifted and, and sorted into um, studies that have very, looked at very similar similar things. And this has looked at sleep duration and sleep disorders and the incidence of cardiovascular disease. And you can see from here that even short sleep, so sleep that's less than five hours, have a significant increased risk of diabetes mellitus, hypertension, coronary heart disease, and stroke. But also there's a long sleep that has the same issue. So there's an inverted U theory in terms of the amount of sleep that we should get in terms of our, our metabolic and cardiovascular health. And that aim is between seven to nine hours. Then we've got insomnia and sleep disorder breathing that all have the same impact. So it's not just sleep disorder breathing that meant the medical field needs to be looking at. It's actually short duration and long duration. And the mechanism behind this are all very similar. It's essentially it's that overactivation of the sympathetic nervous system that leads to this increased influx of of cortisol that then has additional stress in the body, causes inflammation and changes in hormones. And all of this here, actually what happens is during sleep is that we actually, during REM sleep particularly, is we get an increase in metabolic activity within our brain which actually causes more glucose to be uptaked by the brain. Now, if you've got obstructive sleep apnea or you have a short sleep duration, the likeliness that you're going to have a lack in REM sleep is very high. So therefore, the metabolic um, activity with, with during sleep is actually lowered, but the production of glucose in the body by uh, gluconeogenesis is actually increased because of the sympathetic nervous activity causes stress within the body. What that leads to is high glucose levels but a dysfunction in insulin. So over a period of time, we get this beta cell dysfunction that leads to glucose intolerance and type 2 diabetes. There's also this um, tri triage of a link between hypertension, obstructive sleep apnea, and obesity that needs to pay uh, significant attention to. If you look at the world now, you know what is it, 40 to 40%, 45% of Australians, Americans, and the UK are all obese, with 50 to 60% at least now overweight. Of those, we're probably looking at around about one in four males and maybe one in eight females that have obstructive sleep apnea. And maybe those that have the both, you're probably looking at about 80% of those who have hypertension. And you can just see. This causes endothelial dysfunction, which is, leads to atherosclerosis within the body and therefore heart attacks. Systemic inflammation, which can lead to exactly the same thing, but also you know, things like rheumatoid arthritis, sarcoidosis, um, all those issues that are related to inflammation. Insulin resistance, type 2 diabetes, you get decreases in renal function, hyperlipidemia that can lead to leptin resistance that can cause issues with um, with uh, appetite causing people to eat a lot more food than they should do obstructive sleep apnea itself causes sleep fragmentation 
uh, and there's a drop in oxygen levels consistently, which causes this intermittent hypoxia. We get these large changes within the intrathoracic pressure, so the, the, with the pressure within the chest, and that leads to oxidative stress, systemic inflammation, uh, and, and just this whole nervous system is just on a stress side, and that's what is then causes cardiovascular disease. So we need to be paleo put in particular focus onto sleep as well as nutrition and exercise in health. And it's, it's, it's one of the first things that we can fix. Changing someone's behavior around nutrition is a lot harder because people eat for pleasure. But changing around, around habits around sleep is a lot easier because although people enjoy sleep, it's not something that we get pleasure from. Okay, so obstructive sleep apnea. So it's a sleep disorder, breathing, sleep disorder, sleep breathing disorder, essentially where the airway relaxes to a bit too much, and the tongue and all the musculature at the back of the throat falls back, which causes snoring when there's a vibration of airway going in and out of the uh, as the airflow goes in and out. But this can also fully occlude the airway, and when that happens for more than ten seconds, we call it an apnea. Now, with the airway relaxes enough to start to affect the oxygen, the airflow, and therefore oxygen levels, we call that a hypopnea. We then score up the number of those over the period of the night and divide that by how many times, how, how, how long people have slept for, and we get what's called the AHI. And when that's above more than five per hour, we say they have obstructive sleep apnea. But what actually happens is the airway collapses, oxygen levels start to fall, the body then recognizes the oxygen levels are starting to fall, and we get this, you know, this automatic nervous response is from the, the central nervous system. A surge of adrenaline is released, blood pressure increases, heart rate increases, and you get this um, gasp of air as someone just kind of jolts and jerks like they have just been a shock on a shock on the table, or you know, if someone shouts at you without you kind of knowing, you get that get that, that surge of adrenaline run through you, and it just kind of causes this excitation. That happens multiple times. So the, the image that we actually get when we've got someone with severe obstructive sleep apnea is you look at here, the sleep stages at the very top, you can see it's very fragmented. It's very chopped up. And that's what we call really, really poor quality sleep. Just under that is the oxygen levels. Now, if you line that up with the REM sleep, the red parts, you can actually see that the oxygen levels drop rapidly. Now, pulse oximetry, when it gets below 9, 88 to 86%, is not very accurate, but it all of a sudden drops down very fast. But that doesn't mean that they're not getting very low oxygen. Some people can have apneas that are lasting between 60 to 90 seconds. I've seen even worse. Now, this individual would typically probably have what we call an AHI of maybe uh, 60 to 70, but I've seen it go all the way up to 155. So these individuals are having Brit breathing issues almost every minute up to two minutes an hour up to every two minutes uh, two per minute and then also sometimes even three per minute it only has to be 10 seconds long now you imagine the symptoms that these individuals are getting you know, they're going to feel absolutely shattered during the day they're going to have a headache they're probably going to be overweight and obese as a consequence of poor sleep as well as other lifestyle factors Blood pressure is going to be through the roof. They're going to be getting get waking up all the time, going to the toilet quite often during the night. There'll be heavy snorers. 
um, issues with their memory, their, their coordination, may be depressed or have anxiety or have mood issues. This paints a picture of a lot of people, especially in Australia, those who are working in the FIFO industry. And it's, you know, it's known from this latest study that was released in 2016 that 9% of women and 25% of males now have clinically significant obstructive sleep apnea in Australia. In the medical field, those with drug-resistant hypertension have a 64% risk of having, um, no, 64% of those individuals have sleep disorder breathing. Those who have heart failure, 76%, uh, atrial fibrillation, 62%, yeah, all, all, all hypertension is 37%, acute coronary heart uh, syndrome, 55%, stroke, 58%. So the most of the people that are in hospitals as inpatients or outpatients of chronic disease, they are most likely going to have some form of sleep disorder breathing. And we have to make sure that we fix their sleep because if we don't fix their sleep, we're doing them a disservice. Throwing medications at them for their symptoms is all great, but what about the underlying cause that could be there contributing to the issue? So the main risk factors for obstructive sleep apnea are obesity, the fact that people are just overweight and have a lot of um, fat on their neck causes their, their airways to collapse easier, age, weakened muscles, the, the, the oral pharynx muscles, that the, the back of the throat just get weaker and therefore can, can relax further and cause these apneas. Gender, typically within gender, we do see more males, twice the amount of males having, having obstructive sleep apnea than, than females. They just see it seems to be a component to do with hormones. So around the age of 50, when testosterone starts to rapidly drop, there we do see uh, an increase in, in obstructive sleep apnea. Same on the other side as well as those who have very high testosterone levels, perhaps they're into weightlifting bodybuilders and take anabolic steroids, they actually uh, have an increased risk of obstructive sleep apnea. And females and women that go through the menopause, we start to see sleep disruptions and an increase of obstructive sleep apnea as well and during pregnancy. There's uh, the anatomical issues, so the actual jaw itself, so typically Kiwi Maoris, South Pacific Islanders, Chinese, Indian, they tend to have this um, narrow sort of um, wide jaws but narrow throats at the back or very large tongues, very very large anoids and and um, and tonsils which makes a little space at the back of the, the airways so it can only has to collapse a short amount. And then we've got now, all the comorbid diseases I've talked about, diabetes, uh, cardiovascular disease, hypertension, all those can contribute to obstructive sleep apnea as well as be a symptom of. Now, I have my own theory that actually in the world we now live in that stress is also contributing to obstructive sleep apnea. And I'm going to take you through that. And it's a little bit complex, but I hope that you can understand as I go along. Now, we know that an increase in stress actually has an impact on uh, the autonomic dysfunction, obesity, hypertension, uh, the endothelial dysfunction, uh, the bone de decreases in bone density, and this is all to do with this surge of sympathetic nervous activity from stress. Now, leptin, which is a protein hormone that's actually secreted and uh, synthesized by the fat tissue, it's thought to mainly regulate appetite. So when we eat, leptin increases, and that actually tells the brain that we know we're satiated and we no longer um, want to eat. 
However, it is leptin also inhibits the the HPA axis, which regulates uh, the increases in cortisol or the, the production of cortisol, and so therefore leptin inhibits stress. But in the long term, people may have leptin resistance. However, a short sleep duration is equivalent to having a reduction of leptin of roughly 50%. So it looks like leptin or sleep, there's this, there's this association of sleep and the release of leptin. And it makes sense, right? You don't want to be getting hungry and waking up and you want to feel satiated throughout the night. Leptin also regulates the, the, uh, the metabolism and it also uh, changes and helps regulate how when, when fats release and the lipids, lipids are broke down into the blood to be used as fuel. So those who have four hours sleep compared to 12 hours sleep have a significant reduction in leptin. But this also reflects down here at point uh, E on this graph is that actually there's large changes in our simple vagal balance. Now this is a reflection of what nerval activity we're going through. The higher this balance, the more um, sympathetic nervous activity there is. So is it because of this leptin? In those who have severe obstructive sleep apnea, serum leptin, so the amount of leptin that we have in the blood, corresponds exactly with the force generated during, during uh, respiration or breathing during sleep. But also the max, the, 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 uh, the, the drive to breathe as well is increased by leptin. And we know by the science now that leptin is a powerful respiratory stimulation during sleep. The, the time when an individual is, is most susceptible to having a apnea during sleep is when at a normal end of a normal breath, say if you're to breathe out, at the end of a normal breath, just before you breathe back in again, there's a slight phase, a, a, a change between negative pressure in the airway, positive pressure in the airway, and negative pressure in the airway. Now, if the airway relaxes too much during that phase or if there's a pause, what happens is the the musculature around the airway relaxes. Now, if the fluid on that airway actually touches each other, you then get that, that, that surface tension, and that's what pulls the airway together and causes this occlusion. Now, there has to be a certain amount of positive pressure when you breathe back in again to overcome that occlusion of that surface tension from that fluid. Now, it looks like those who have higher leptin have a reduced amount of pressure that's required to, to open that airway. So therefore it suggests that leptin has this kind of mechanism of protecting the airway during an apnea. So what stimulates inspiration during sleep? So the breathing in during sleep. Now there's what we call the pre-motor neurons, tonic motor neurons, and then we get this negative pressure reflex. In those who have obstructive sleep apnea, there's a significant reduction in both the inspiratory premotor neuron activity and the tonic proteinuron activity within the muscle of the, the hypoglossal muscle, which is the muscle that is around the airway, keeping the airway open. But there's a complete disappearance of this uh, negative pressure reflex. So my hypothesis or my suggestion is that leptin has a role in regulating this negative pressure reflex and actually a reduction in, in leptin from chronic stress or chronic low levels of um, lo low sleep duration 
causes a, a decrease in, in leptin, an increase in cortisol, and therefore we have an increased risk of having obstructive sleep apnea. But what about how obstructive sleep apnea is treated? So if you've got severe or moderate obstructive sleep apnea, you're most likely going to be referred to what's called CPAP therapy. Now CPAP therapy stands for continuous positive airway pressure. And it's a small machine that generates a pressure to overcome that negative pressure in the, in the airways. So you imagine air blown into a balloon, what does it do? It inflates the balloon. Well, this is just a continuous flow of air that goes through a small mass that might go over the nose or over the nose and mouth. And it just generates a pressure in that airway to keep your airway open. If you can keep the airway open, you can breathe more freely and you don't have these apneas and you don't have that whole cascade of events occurring within your body and you get much more rested sleep and most people feel a massive benefit. Now, I've had individuals that have come back to me a year later and it's changed their lives. They've lost significant amount of weight because the energy that they've got, they've got from sleeping again. You know, they've gone out and they've got themselves a dog, they've gone walking, they've had gym memberships. And it's an amazing part of my job that I get to see these individuals change. And it can change anywhere between one night all the way up to four weeks, up to you know, taking years. But it really depends on the individual. Now, if you can't tolerate that and you might have uh, mild or moderate sleep apnea or you're more just concerned about snoring, then we can use what's called a mandibular advancement device. And that's a small device that splints, sits into the mouth and it holds that lower jaw forward and prevents it from relaxing back and prevents that airway from, from collapsing. Other therapies, if obstructive sleep apnea is only when people are in supine positions, when they're laying on the back can be positional therapy. This could be anything from um, having a rucksack on your back or putting a pillow up against the wall or, or sleeping against the wall so you can't lay on your back but you can get what these called night shift devices and they just vibrate every time you lay on your back that disturbs you and then wakes you up and you know, this just saves the wife knocking knocking you with the elbow uh, consistently and just and just helps them get good sleep as well as yourself there are also surgeries if you've got um, not enough space at the back of your airways you can get your ovary removed and your, all that soft palate all your tonsils removed and that can create generate some space in the airways uh, i've not really seen much success with the surgeries um yeah, it's 50 50 it, it tends to young people tend to go for these for these surgeries and then the obstructive sleep apnea might come back a little bit later on so i have produced um a five tips the science of five tips for a good sleep um, on Medium, using this, this this hyperlink here if you guys want to, to take a look, you can do. I'm just going to quickly run through my five tips in this new age today. So number one would be to keep it consistent. Obviously, I've just discussed that we have circadian rhythms and we also have this sleep homeostasis, so this pressure that builds up throughout the day. Now, if we keep it consistent we're gonna, and get up at the same time every day, that the amount of adenosine that we accrue throughout the day is going to be consistent. But also, the times that we get up in the day and night, it's going to be uh, regulated by the sun and light. So that takes me on to the second one, is that actually follow the sun. So if you're at home and the sun's starting to set, don't leave all the lights on in your house. Gradually dim your lights down to the point where 
half an hour before your bed, you might only have a candle on or you might only have a small lamp on so that you can just see what you're doing. And one thing that most people do is when they go to sleep is they go to brush their teeth. Now, if you're going to brush your teeth and you turn your main beam on in your in your room again, in your in your bathroom, sorry, or if you go to the mirror and go to take your makeup off if you're a female and turn the bathroom lights on and you've got the light shining in your eyes, that's going to shift back that melatonin and you're not going to feel as tired as you, as you were only five minutes ago. So really make it so that you've, you dim down your lights and you start to create this kind of um, uh, darkness or this, this scheme that you're actually starting to slow down the day and you're starting to go to sleep. The next one will be to ban technology on the room. The bedroom is for sleeping and for sex only. So let's not create a behavior where the brain associates the bed with laptops, with movies, with entertainment, with um, with work, with with being on your phone, all those different things. Ban those, te- ban that technology from the room, so that your brain, from a behavioral psychological uh, perspective, believes that the bedroom is for two things only. But also, if you have your mobile in your room, is that you're not accepting that the day is over. It's almost like you've got a mobile in your room because you've got an alarm on there, which is, you know, it's okay to have the alarm on there, but it's also having your emails, it's having the ability to be able to people call you, um, you know, be able to contact you on social media. People are being addicted to these things nowadays. The brain is not going to not going to switch off, and that's unconsciously you're not going to know that. But also, obviously, the shining of the light bright at night time as well. Blue light is terrible for our for our melatonin, and then it can, it's, it's it, blue light has been a you know, long term blue light exposure at night time is a linked with increased risk of things like breast cancer. Be mindful of alcohol and caffeine consumption. So alcohol is a bit of a, a misperceived drug essentially when it comes to sleep because it helps a lot of people get to sleep and it's one of those you know people say i have a nightcap but it, and it is a depressant so initially you go into this rapid phase of, of deep sleep but then you get a rebound and all of a sudden when the alcohol actually is is uh, being metabolized it becomes a stimulant and it actually causes the arousals in your brain and causes you to wake up a lot more so it really disrupts and fragments your, your later on sleep and the sleep quality that you get is a lot poorer than it would be if you didn't have it Caffeine consumption, so caffeine works by inhibiting those adenosine receptors, so therefore the adenosine doesn't have that cognitive impairment on our brain, and so therefore it makes us feel more alert than we would be if we were to not have it, and caffeine does actually um, last in the body, it has a half-life of roughly six hours, so if you have a coffee at 5 p.m., roughly half of that coffee is still in your system at 11 p.m., and that is going to cause uh, an influx in excitatory within the brain and block that adenosine and not make you feel asleep as you should be. So limit caffeine as much as you can, especially if you're having struggles with sleep. The first thing I do is to remove caffeine from the individual and just be mindful not to have that too late in the evenings. Then clear, create your sleep environment. So the room should be cool. It should be between 19 and 20 degrees centigrade. It should be comfy. It should, you know, you should have a bed that is suitable for you. That it's clean, it's uh, it's spacious, that it's it's dark, so you shouldn't be be able to see your hand in front of your in front of your face. If you if you can, you need to get a, a night, um, uh, night not, not night goggles. Sorry, you need to get a sleeping mask, and make it so it's like a place that you actually want to go and sleep in. If you were to take a step back and you were to say, okay. 
as you if you're especially if you're a teenager i don't know if many teenagers are going to be watching listening to this and watching this but um if your mom was to look into your room and go that's a place i want to sleep in if they were to come and stay over make your room look like that okay so we've covered why what and how we sleep we've gone through the normal sleep physiology we talked about the impacts of having poor sleep We've gone through an introduction to obstructive sleep apnea and what that is and a little bit of my theories. We've also gave you some tips to take away today on sleep hygiene. So we're essentially, we're all finished. So I just wanted to say thank you for taking the time and um, to look at this and hope you sleep well.